Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the hyperpolarization of our era and the anti-democratic instincts of the right taking hold in state legislatures. Building on a decade of gerrymandering and voter suppression within a structurally undemocratic American political system that has helped Republicans create minority rule in many places and unearned supermajorities in others, they have now turned to simply ejecting their elected political opponents from fully representing their constituents. Clips today are from The Intelligence, The Bradcast, The Last Word, The New Yorker Radio Hour, The Laura Flanders Show, Democracy Now!, All In With Chris Hayes, and the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs, with an additional members-only clip from Not Another Politics Podcast. This year, many states are flush with cash, and plenty of governors are legislating with one eye on a White House run. Usually, state lawmakers and legislatures get just a fraction of the attention that Congress does. But in 2023 especially, they're worth keeping an eye on. There are going to be a few big themes to watch playing out in state legislatures this year. The first is the continuing rise of hyper-polarized policies. We're going to see blue and red states push farther apart. A second will be lawmakers taking aim at companies that defy their agendas. And a third is the way that governors are going to use these legislative sessions as resume building for their campaigns for higher office. While Congress is gridlocked, the state houses in America are very much not. And this year, many of the nation's hottest issues are going to play out in state capitals. So let's start with the first theme you mentioned, the hyperpolarized policies. Tell us more about that. You're going to see red and blue states take on a whole range of issues, some of which they've already grappled with, some of which are going to be newer in 2023. We'll see them take on voting rights, abortion again, gay rights, education, and taxation. And they're going to push apart. So we're going to see Democratic states push in one direction and red states push in the other. So one illustration of this is a recent proposal that came out in Wyoming to ban the sale of all new electric vehicles starting in the year 2035, purportedly in order to protect the state's oil and gas industry. But that was a direct swipe at California's regulations that are attempting to ban the sale of petrol-powered cars starting in 2035. Of course, there will be others as well. Guns will be a battleground. In California, which already has very strict gun laws, there are new proposals after recent mass shootings to increase the taxes on firearms or lengthen sentences for gun-related crimes. In Florida, they're pushing in the opposite direction by embracing what is called permitless carry, which allows people to carry around a gun in public without training or a permit. These are all different issues, but they're united by one similar trend, which is one-party control. There are 39 states in which a single political party controls all three branches of government, both chambers of the legislature and the governor's office. They're known as trifecta states, and it's the lack of political competition in these states that allows for these proposals to pass into law without much debate or being slowed down by either gridlock or dissent. And what about the second theme you mentioned, bills taking aim at corporations? Where are we seeing those? 
This is an emerging trend, but one we saw very prominently last year when Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida took aim at Disney for coming out against a bill that the state legislature and the governor had supported on parental rights and education, otherwise known as the Don't Say Gay Bill. We saw a lot of this, but then for Disney to come out and put a statement and say that the bill should have never passed and that they are going to actively work to repeal it, I think one was fundamentally dishonest, but two, I think that crossed the line. This state is governed. And we're likely to see this happen a lot in 2023. So, one example is that some Republican states are proposing that they would revoke firms' tax incentives if those companies help their employees get abortions. There are also examples of several states, including Arkansas and Missouri, that are trying to propose bills to prohibit or punish firms that use environmental, social, and governance principles in their investing. These are corporate concepts that are really dirty words in the Republican ethos. And on the Democratic side, we're going to see states take aim also at companies. One example to watch would be California lawmakers, which are mulling a cap on oil firms' profits. And the third theme you mentioned, governors using the legislative sessions to polish their resumes for higher office. Who are you thinking of and where are we seeing that? This is going to play out across newspaper front pages in the months ahead. The most high-profile example, I think, is Ron DeSantis, who is a leading contender for the Republican nomination for president. And he's using this legislative session as a way to show what he stands for in the public eye. That means taking on issues that are specific to Florida and also issues that don't really have to do with Florida or aren't state priorities, but he thinks will play out pretty prominently on the national stage. Meanwhile, Texas and other states are likely to copy some of Mr. DeSantis's signature policies that helped get him so much attention last year. There are, of course, other governors, too, that have aspirations for higher office. Those include Republican governors Glenn Youngkin of Virginia and Kristi Noem of South Dakota, but also Democrats Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan and Gavin Newsom of California. So we've talked about hot button culture war issues and about resume polishing. What about sort of substantive bread and butter issues like the economy? What are we going to see there from state legislatures? It's a really interesting moment for state legislatures because many have very large surpluses, but the economic outlook is looking uncertain. And so how those states are going to use their surpluses and how much they should save for more difficult times will be a very hot topic of debate across various states. In Texas, it's playing out in an interesting way. The state has a record surplus of about $33 billion. The governor, Greg Abbott, has said he wants to use that to cut property taxes. Others, including Democrats, which are, of course, in the minority in Texas are suggesting using the money to raise teacher pay. But there are going to be a lot of different suggestions about how to use these surpluses in many states that are enjoying them. One of the exceptions is California, which is actually facing a deficit of around $20 billion this fiscal year. How will all of this activity affect the national policy conversation? I think that this legislative session really encapsulates the divisions that we're seeing in the country between red and blue states. So I would watch Texas and Florida to understand where the Republican agenda is going. And I would watch California and to a certain extent, New York to understand where the 
democratic agenda is going. But there's also a really interesting category of states to watch. And those are the states that have actually flipped in the 2022 election to having one party control. So I think it will be worth watching both Michigan and Minnesota, which became democratic trifectas in 2022, to see which sorts of policies they're likely to pursue. Some are expecting Michigan to repeal the anti-union right-to-work law, that will be a really interesting lens onto where the Democratic Party sees opportunity and what the party's priorities are likely to be. You've really painted a picture of states moving in markedly different directions depending on their politics. We're seeing the emergence, it feels like, of two very different Americas. Do you think this trend will continue? Yes, I think that today where you are born or where you choose to live confers very different rights and opportunities. We're seeing states take up a whole range of policy issues, many of which will really change the lived experience of people depending on where they are. And I expect that to only continue this session and the months ahead, but then in the years ahead as well, as states face less political competition within their boundaries, there's less reason to compromise or listen to alternative opinions. And so I think we're only going to see a further divergence in policy among states going forward. In Arkansas, after, even after voters there specifically, soundly rejected a constitutional amendment that was proposed by the legislature to stiffen the requirements to get measures on the ballot, voters rejected that. So what did the legislature do? They simply passed a new law, new requirements by themselves as uh, a new state law. Uh, Governor, Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders immediately signed that law because, you know, the hell to what with to what voters actually want. Right, Sarah? Republicans were said to have been surprised by how forcefully voters turned out to reject anti-abortion laws last year, even in red states. In Kansas, the Republican-controlled legislature, you recall, put forward a ballot initiative that would have reversed a 2019 state Supreme Court finding that uh, there is a right to abortion in the state constitution. Uh, The measure was then placed on the ballot in the August primary last year when turnout is, again, typically low, but abortion rights groups mobilized and they defeated it. In November, voters defeated a similar measure in Kentucky, along with an anti-abortion law in Montana. At the same time, they approved measures to recognize the constitutional right to abortion in Vermont, California, and Michigan. The decision to raise the threshold to 60% in Ohio was almost certainly not an arbitrary choice. What they have found in Michigan, Kentucky, and Kansas was that the vote for abortion rights was between 52 and 59%. So if you put it just out of reach at 60%, well then you can make sure democracy does not happen. 
quote, when they're raising the passage threshold to 60 or 65 percent, it's often just a percent or a couple of points above what has been needed to pass initiatives in the past. That, according to Chris Melody Fields Figueredo, the executive director of the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, uh, who explained that to the New York Times, she told us the very same thing on this program way back in January. Yep. Uh, when she joined us here. Glad the Times is catching up. <laughs> anyway, the uh, this is um, one of the core beliefs I was taught in being a Republican, said State Senator Brian King in Arkansas, is that we should make it easier for citizens to get things on the ballot and challenge the what the government does. He said the new law in that state, in Arkansas, simply crossed the line. In my old home state of Missouri, sadly, which used to be a battleground state until I moved out, I blame myself. <laughs> the Republican legislature there, they're on the verge of putting a constitutional amendment on the ballot this November, raising the approval threshold for proposed amendments to 60 percent from 50 percent as well. Voters, however, would be unlikely to even know that that measure would do that. The proposal was passed by the House. It was sent to the state Senate. It specifies that it must be described on the ballot only as a measure to require voters to be properly registered U.S. citizens and Missouri residents. So the ballot language itself that the Missouri Republican legislature is putting forth is deceptive? Very it's a lie. I mean, calling it deceptive would be a very nice okay. way to put it. We'll call it a lie. It, They're lying to the voters. This is not about making sure that, you know, voters are properly registered U.S. citizens and Missouri residents. This is specifically meant to take their rights away. I hope to let folks in Missouri know what is actually happening and how they are being lied to and screwed over by the uh, Republicans who run the state at this point. By the way, the state constitution already requires the voters be properly registered U.S. citizens and Missouri residents. So uh, they're so cowardly and, and so corrupt and so power hungry that not only are they going to take power away from voters, they're going to trick them into doing it to themselves. You know, some days I wish we were not on FCC radio. <laughs> this is one of those days. In the battle for the soul of America, pay attention to the state legislatures. These are the front lines, end quote. That's how one Democrat put it today, when just two weeks after Republicans in Tennessee voted to expel two black representatives, another Republican-led state legislature voted to kick out a Democrat who dissented. This is Montana State Representative Zoe Zephyr. She's a Democrat. The people of Montana House District 100, part of the city of Missoula, elected to represent them. Today, Republicans voted to bar her from the state house chamber for the rest of the current legislative session. The Republican playbook here is very similar to what we all watched in Tennessee. Her transgression, according to the Montana House Republicans, was breaking with decorum in the chamber. That's the thing these days. Zoe Zephyr is trans. She is Montana's first and only trans lawmaker. And last week, she said this to her Republican colleagues as they pushed a bill to restrict gender-affirming care for minors. And the only thing I will say is if, I, if you vote yes on this bill, 
And yes, on these amendments, I hope the next time there's an invocation, when you bow your heads in prayer, you see the blood on your hands. Republicans also accused Representative Zephyr of inciting demonstrators who'd assembled in the House uh, gallery to support her. Again, very similar to what we saw in the Tennessee State House. And just a few hours ago, the Montana State House voted 68 to 32 along party lines to bar Representative Zephyr from entering the chamber for the rest of the legislative session. She can vote and attend sessions remotely. Speaking before the vote this afternoon, Representative Zephyr, who will join us in just a moment, defended her initial comments. She defended the right of her constituents to have their representative in the state house chamber, and she defended democracy itself. Last week, I spoke on the governor's amendments to Senate Bill 99, which banned gender-affirming care. This was a bill that was one of many targeting the LGBTQ community in Montana. I have had friends who have taken their lives because of these bills. I have fielded calls from families in Montana including one family whose trans teenager attempted to take her life while watching a hearing on one of the anti-trans bills. So when I rose up and said, there is blood on your hands, I was not being hyperbolic. I was speaking to the real consequences of the votes that we as legislators take in this body. And when the speaker asks me to apologize what he is, uh, on behalf of decorum, what he is really asking me to do is be silent when my community is facing bills that get us killed. He's asking me to be complicit in this legislature's eradication of our community, and I refuse to do so, and I will always refuse to do so. I would also say that if you use decorum to silence people who hold you accountable, then in the name of the, all you are doing is using decorum as a tool of oppression. Additionally, when the speaker disallowed me to speak, what he was doing is taking away the voices of the 11,000 Montanans who, repre- who elected me to speak on their behalf. What my constituents in my community did is came here and said, that is our voice in this body. Let her speak. Let her speak. And when the speaker gaveled down the people demanding that democracy work, demanding that their representative be heard, when he gaveled down, what he was doing is driving a nail in the coffin of democracy. But you cannot kill democracy that easily. You cannot kill democracy that easily. We know Republicans are using these attacks to ignite their base. It's kind of a cynical political nihilism that isn't interested in making your life any better through policy. It's about othering people, making them scary. And as you heard State Representative Zephyr say, it's causing real harm. Today, outside the Capitol, another prominent young Democrat condemned Republicans. For these folks, January 6th was just a dress rehearsal. It was just a dress rehearsal because legally, let's not lose the plot. They were trying to block a duly elected official, in this case, the president of the United States, from taking office. And legislatures across the country looked at that and say, you know what, let's try to get Representative Jones out from office. Let's try to get Representative Zoe Zephyr in Montana out of office. Let's try to kick out the people because we cannot beat them. This is what fascism does when it is on its hind heels. It, it is always darkest before dawn. We are winning this thing. We are winning this thing. 
Pay attention to state legislatures. These are the front lines. Also joining Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at that rally, which coincidentally was called on the front lines of democracy, young and fed up. Two other young Democrats who will also be joining us in just a moment. The Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones and the youngest member of the U.S. House, Florida Democrat Maxwell Frost. As we saw in Tennessee, their action was to set a precedent. We saw what happened in Montana a couple hours ago. And if we do not stand together, it will continue to happen again and again and again and grow more extreme. And so our message is quite simple. Is that if you come for one of us, you come for all of us. If you come for one of us, you come for all of us. We've seen the rise of this right-wing movement that is dangerous that is dangerous and targeting marginalized communities because they don't have solutions to the affordable housing crisis, to the housing crisis. They don't have solutions to ending gun violence. They don't have solutions to the existential climate crisis. So what they want to do instead is pick marginalized communities, LGBTQ plus folks, trans folks, black people, black history, books, immigrants, and target them instead. We are here to challenge power. We are here to reclaim power, and we are here to build power, not just for communities, but with them, with them. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Last month, we saw two lawmakers thrown out of their seats for joining a protest which became a big national story. And in Montana this week, a state representative named Zoe Zephyr is suing in an attempt to regain access to the House floor after she gave a speech against restrictions on gender-affirming care. Why are Republicans escalating these seemingly minor confrontations in state legislatures to be national news stories? How does that possibly benefit them? And one interesting puzzle is these happened in uh, states that have super majorities of Republicans in the legislature. So it's not like eliminating one seat here or there is going to shift a vote on state legislation in these cases. So that's extra interesting. But really what we're seeing is the uh, long culmination of the increasing nationalization of American politics, where state legislatures are at the front line of battling over the national tug of war over issues uh, in the culture war, especially like transgender rights and uh, issues of racial conflict. Well, how did this happen and why? It must be a deliberate choice on somebody's um, behalf. It took uh, sort of major investments by both political parties nationally, uh, campaign donors nationally, and organized interest groups and activist groups over the long term with respect to issues like abortion and reproductive rights or issues of gun rights and gun control. Now we really have two national teams, the Republicans and the Democrats, battling over this tug of war nationally through the institutions of state government. Is there anybody that's responsible for this strategy? How, how would you personalize this in, in Washington right. on behalf of the, either the Republican National Committee or the greater Republican Party? So we can point to, you know, the Koch brothers. Um, the Koch brothers have funded uh, groups like Americans for Prosperity, as well as been... Uh, uh, you know, had an arm's length distance, but been sort of involved in the American Legislative Exchange Council. 
And ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, is an incredibly important organization that really organized three constituencies. That's major business and extractive industry, gun rights, libertarians, and the religious right. And what they did is they uh, really provided what we social scientists call legislative subsidies for state legislatures. Okay, what, what, is, that what, means what is, does that mean? State legislatures, I don't mean this as an insult, are less professionalized and more amateurish than Congress. They don't have big staff to write bills. They don't have staff lawyers all the time. In some state legislatures, you know, people go into the legislature for a, maybe a couple months a year and the That's rest right. of the time they're on the, you know, on their corporate board and the American Plastics Council and doing their, you know, earning money. They earn low salaries in the legislature. So what that means is they need help from groups and uh, experts and activists on what to bring on to the political agenda in their states and what bills to write and pass, because mm. that takes serious professional work. And groups like ALEC provided model bills around issues like stand your ground laws that then spread across states, especially Republican controlled states. But it's not just on the right. You know, you think about um, climate activist groups and things have really helped the coastal states uh, like California pass fuel efficiency standards and other climate regulations and uh, integrate Democratic state governments into the national sort of Democratic Party position on climate and the environment. Now, Jake, I spoke recently with a lawmaker in Nebraska who's been fighting a ban, fighting a ban on transgender care in that state. She told me that our constituents don't really care that much about trans issues. And the culture war is kind of out of step with what they do care about agriculture, property taxes, and so on. That really surprised me. Does it surprise you? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. This is part of a larger pattern. And uh, really a couple generations ago for better or worse, you know, it's not always great, but states were much more focused on state-based issues and their regional issues. So this could be a bad thing, like in the era of Jim Crow, where this was really about Southern segregationist states protecting uh, the right at the state level to segregate. This was about local public goods and segregated institutions. Whereas now we have what is a national conflict between the parties. Mm -hmm. So an issue like, uh, you know, policies to go after transgender healthcare or rights or things like that, they're not responding to a, a local influx of transgender rights and trans people, right? This is not uh, responding to a local concern. No, they're they're rather, responding to a hot button culture war thing exactly. that's going to help them possibly in a national election. Exactly. So if you are a politician and you're trying to rise in the ranks from the local or state level in your party, you have to think about right. where the donors are, where the organizations in your party network are, and where the national party is. So your best bet is to join the national culture war. So Ron DeSantis is a great example of this in Florida, of really being entrepreneurial, saying, I want to rise in the ranks in the National Republican Party, tap national Republican donors who care about these national issues. And same thing with, you know, Gavin Newsom or, you know, other Democratic governors have responded in kind to tap the Democratic donor base and rise in the ranks and potentially run for president. And this is a, a massive change from a couple of generations ago. And we also have to really emphasize that, unfortunately, voters are really responding to the national tug of war. And we've seen statistically in political science, the diminishment 
um, and decline of economic voting and voting on the basis of how your area is doing economically or socially and much more about uh, your sort of national partisanship. There was a time not so long ago when state level politics would have been thought of certainly to you know, reporters who are aching to go to Washington is kind of boring. They're concerned with budgets and roads, and that seems to have changed. What's been the effect on the actual day-to-day life of the states? Is if, if you're spending all your time screaming and yelling at each other about issues that, you know, bear on very few people and are there to impress Fox News or, or, or whomever it's there to impress, what's getting lost? So there's a sort of feedback cycle in the nationalization of political media here, where the Internet and the rise of Craigslist really destroyed classified revenue, classified ad revenue for local newspapers that were on the state legislative beat. So there's been a huge decline in state politics journalism. So that makes it harder for voters to hold state level politicians accountable. And what that means is now voting is really detached from the performance of state legislators and governors on issues like expanding the economy and jobs and, you know, how COVID is doing in an area. And this makes it really hard to do, uh, have a healthy political system where you bargain over policy when it's sort of national tug of war on these culture war issues where there's really uh, no room to negotiate. North Carolinians vote roughly 50-50 Republican and Democrat, with African Americans voting heavily Democratic and the Republican vote heavily white. Yet Republicans enjoy a veto-proof supermajority in both houses of the state government. How did that come about? Because they have abused the line-drawing process, which happens every decade after a census, in order to manipulate it so that they get more power. They favor certain voters, their voters, and they discriminate against other voters who may disagree with them. And in the process, they make some people's votes worth more than others. And that is antithetical to what democracy is supposed to be. This legislature has been elected time and time again under unconstitutional maps, uh, and that is problematic. So it's not a surprise they have these powers because that's what they've done is manipulate it to their advantage. A case in point, in 2016, Democrats won 46% of the vote in North Carolina's congressional races, but only managed to win three out of the state's 13 seats. The U.S. Supreme Court eventually ruled that the maps used in those elections were racially gerrymandered and had to be rewritten. Under the new maps, our congressional delegation in Washington today is seven Democrats and seven Republicans in a 50-50 state. Now, they're not happy with that because they want to be able to make whatever decision they want, ignoring the will of the people. And and that's wrong. While racial gerrymandering has been declared unconstitutional, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that claims of unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering, writing maps to benefit one party over another, is a matter for the states to adjudicate. How they do that is the question at the heart of the case decided on April 28th. Hillary Harris-Klein is Senior Counsel for Voting Rights for the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. She helped argue the case at the North Carolina Supreme Court. 
In 2021, after the last U.S. Census was released, uh, North Carolina's legislatures redrew all of our electoral maps. And when they did that, they intentionally drew extreme partisan gerrymanders. Um, we know that because our client, Common Cause, along with other plaintiffs, sued in court contending these were illegal partisan gerrymanders. And that case went to trial in January of 2022. And the trial court unanimously held that all of the maps were extreme partisan gerrymanders, intentional gerrymanders. That would be non-responsive. If there was an election, it would be non-responsive to the will of the voters. In their April 28th decision, a newly elected Republican majority on the North Carolina Supreme Court not only reinstated maps that their Democratic predecessors on the same court had found to be gerrymandered, but argued that only the General Assembly, not the courts or the executive branch, had any authority over redistricting. They also reversed two other decisions, one voiding a discriminatory voter ID law and another that restored the right to vote for those convicted of felonies after their release. We're all supposed to have the right to vote, but we have to have those votes mean something for each vote to be equal. And they're not when there is partisan gerrymandering. We can't uh, underestimate how damaging that is to our long-term health. So... There's a problem, there's a sickness, and that means we have to treat it, and we have to address it, and we have to underscore to people that their vote does count, and that it will be heard, and that they can vote safely and securely, and that is our collective work. This collective work is bolstered by a long history of activism in North Carolina, including the pioneering civil rights work of legal scholar Paulie Murray. It is what we might describe today as gender non-conforming, but that same space did not exist for them in the 20th century. Polly was a legal scholar. They were thinking um, differently and futuristically about legal concepts in ways that their counterparts and even their mentors were unable to. That is what um, laid the groundwork for their impact uh, for civil rights. Polly Murray is hugely influential to anybody doing civil rights in North Carolina, and I think actually across the whole country. Murray was the you know, the intellectual architect of the civil rights movement. In the early 20th century, Murray, a queer black woman whom many today would call non-binary or trans, challenged her contemporaries to apply the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause to cases of discrimination on the basis of gender or race. Laughed at at the time, her arguments were eventually used in the litigation that overturned segregation, with implications for education, transportation, employment, voting, and even on the drafting of the Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA. U.S. democracy, Murray argued, required applying the Constitution to real life in a way that considered not just the behaviors of individuals, but also the structures and rules of a society that effectively discriminate. A right to vote, Murray might say, isn't worth much if because of gerrymandering that vote has no impact. Justin 
Jones, if you could address uh, state legislator um, Zoe's effort to talk about um, what this has meant for you and your reaction to what happened to her. And is there any move for state legislators around the country to band together the silence to refuse to remain silent? Definitely. Well, Representative Zephyr, um, we, we knows, you know, we talked on the phone of the day of this um, horrible and immoral decision to, to censure her um, and just knows that we stand together. And, and as I said that night and as I said that day, um, an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. And so we are united from Tennessee to Montana to Nebraska uh, to Florida, as I was just talking to some lawmakers there, um, against this, this, this trend toward authoritarianism that's silencing voices who need to be heard. And, and if you look— you know, if you look at what we represent, it represents the future of our politics. People who are who are proximate to these issues should have a voice in, in, in challenging them when it comes to the safety of our communities, when it comes to the well-being of our communities, when it comes to what democracy should be in our states. And so um, Representative Zephyr knows that, I, that I'm, I'm standing with you, that whatever I can do um, to show up in solidarity, to, to, to push back and let them know that we're not going to be divided, that we see this as a united struggle, that we see this as a struggle in which um, solidarity, deep solidarity matters, in which um, resisting together um, against these forces of authoritarianism is going to be um, something that we continue to do um, nationwide. And so um, thank you for your courage. And, and, and I'm just so grateful to see um, when you walked out, you, you had that same feeling of dignity. You, you walked out with your head held high um, and that, and because we know that we are on the right side of history. And so it's just beautiful to see those photos that you um, were unbowed, that you were, you were pushing forward and that you did not let them shame you, but you saw that the community stands with you, the people of this nation stand with you, um, and will continue to push forward um, unafraid and, 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 and unbowed against these forces. And State Representative uh, Zoe Zephyr, if you could respond and talk about— um, the effect it had on you—this is right before you were censured—seeing Justin Pearson and Justin Jones being expelled from the state legislature, did you, at that point, have any sense what was going to happen to you? I didn't. But I think, you know, what people keep saying is courage is contagious. When you watch people stand up for what is right, to defend their community when marginalized groups come together and say, as— Representative Jones has said, an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. When you see people stand up, it drives you to stand up similarly. And that's also why as the, one of the first groups to come out in support of me was Montana's American Indian Caucus, who said, this is an inappropriate, undemocratic attack on Representative Zephyr. And they know that firsthand because they've experienced that. And the, the attacks on uh, the Native American community in our state and across our country goes way back before the attacks on, on trans people that we're seeing today. And Zoe Zephyr, what has been the response of the people who elected you? I mean, as I was saying um, around Tennessee, it's not as if you, you, you're fired from a store that you're working at. You were elected. Um, and so you have these other representatives who are saying, the city of Missoula cannot have their elected representative speak. What does it mean for them? And when does this banishment end? So that has been, you know, I've seen pride from my community. They have said, thank you so much, first and foremost. Thank you for standing up. Thank you for saying the things we elected you to say, to hold the powerful accountable to the harm that they do. And then I've also seen them express 
frustration when they uh, copy me on their messages to Republican leadership saying, you're taking our voice. They're sending that message in emails. They showed up at the Capitol to send that message and say, you're taking away our representation. And that's not democratic. And going forward, I showed up yesterday ready to do the work as best I can. And I am going to do everything in my power to make sure that the people who elected me, the 11,000 Montanans who elected me, have representation in the people's house. And let me ask you, Justin Jones, about the anti-trans laws being passed in the Tennessee legislature. Um, The Biden administration has filed suit against Tennessee's ban on life-saving care for transgender youth. Can you talk about that and the position you took? Yeah, I mean, all session we've been challenging the slate of hate. Tennessee has had 27 um, anti-LGBTQ laws this session, more than any other state um, being pushed in our legislature, uh, laws to ban drag shows, attack trans youth health care, um, to ch- challenge equality in marriage. I mean, it's, it's just been this, this very hateful um, agenda that we saw. And, we, and we've resisted it at every step, um, even before we were expelled. We were, you know, myself, Representative Pierce and Representative Johnson were some of the most vocal voices challenging uh, this anti-LGBTQ um, agenda. And, and so, you know, we're glad that the federal government is intervening and, and is challenging that, that law that will harm our youth. Um, and, and which we, we shared on the House floor, this is harmful um, to the youth of Tennessee. And, it, and it's very dangerous policy for these lawmakers to try and be doctors, um, as they often try and do. And so we have challenged it. And we know that this, this challenge of attacking the LGBTQ community, of, atta- of attacking people of color, of atta- attacking immigrants, is really an attack on, on, on democracy, is really an attack on our future and the futures that we represent. And so we are, again, once again, fighting together, um, united in this struggle against those who would try and scapegoat members of our community against those who would try and use members of our community as punching bags um, to distract from their failures, from the, you know, to distract from their failures at the fact that in states like ours, the majority, you know, um, one in five children live in poverty. The majority of people are, are struggling to get by um, because they're waging a cultural war instead of waging a war on poverty, instead of waging a war uh, to protect um, our communities from this, 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 this um, wave of environmental injustice that is, is plaguing our communities and of, of a corporate attacks that are, are really um, denigrating our people um, who have to struggle between getting groceries or paying for their um, prescriptions. I mean, this is what we're dealing with is, is really an attempt to um, divide and conquer. And we will, not bow to, we will not cooperate with that. We will not accept that because we know that um, what are the real issues in our community. And, and that's not an issue that they're making. Manufacturing to distract from their failures is not the issues that we should be focused on. Today in North Carolina, the Republican-controlled legislature approved a 12-week abortion ban that looks like it's going to become law. Up until last month, Republicans held majorities in both the State House and the Senate, but anything they passed could be vetoed by the Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. That is until a state representative named Trisha Cotham, who ran and won as a pro-choice Democrat in 2022, that's what she was elected as, in a sudden, startling, and at least partially unexplained move, flipped her party affiliation seemingly out of nowhere to become a Republican. She has said she felt too controlled by the Democratic Party. This is a woman who spoke movingly about her own abortion on the floor of the North Carolina State House in 2015 when she was arguing against abortion restrictions. She even co-sponsored a bill in January, four months ago, to codify abortion protections in her state. 
Yesterday, that same woman you see there cast the deciding vote in line with all of the Republicans to approve a 12-week abortion ban and ensured that even if Governor Cooper vetoes the bill, which he has said he will, Republicans can override the veto and make the ban law. Jessica Valenti's work has been essential in tracking the story of abortion rights in the post-Roe era. She's the author of the newsletter Abortion Every Day, where today she published a story titled Texas is Fabricating Abortion Data. We'll talk about it in a second. And she joins me now. Um, Jess, I saw you also write about the North Carolina law saying it's even worse uh, than you think. Uh, what's your rundown, the basic takeaway of this law? Sure. They are trying very, very hard in North Carolina to make this bill come across as if it's a moderate bill. They're calling it things like common sense, uh, reasonable. One of the sponsors even said it's not an abortion ban. It's a pro-life plan because they know just how much Americans and voters in North Carolina don't want abortion to be restricted. I mean, so they're trying to make it seem like it's super moderate, super common sense, when in fact it's pretty old school. It's a very like old school punitive uh, abortion ban. It has mandates that make women look at ultrasounds and um, listen to fetal heartbeats while the doctor explains the the ultrasound, like really sort of old school Republican stuff that is not moderate, not reasonable in the slightest. There's also this, um, this jumped out at me, and I don't know if you were the person, I think, who pulled this out or someone else did, but that the de- definition of a woman, in- woman, a female human, whether or not she is an adult, which of course just um, lets you know that some of the people who will be forced to carry pregnancies to term will be children under this law. Yeah, they are. I mean, there's a lot of language in the bill that makes it clear that they understand the kind of suffering that this bill is going to cause, right? They're talking about children, though they're saying in a, in a roundabout way, they're talking about um, fetal abnormalities, and talking about uh, providing women with palliative uh, consultations for the newborns that they're going to be forced to carry. Really, really dark stuff, honestly. Um, they have to also explain in writing orally or provide to the women all the following information. These are women that are before yeah. the 12-week ban who, 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 who uh, do want to get an abortion. While there ri- exists a risk of stillbirth with life-limiting anomalies, life-limiting anomalies have resulted in live births of infants with unpredictable and variable lengths of life. This is part of the sort of like state-sanctioned propaganda that has to be directed to every woman actually obtaining an abortion before the cutoff. Yeah. And they have different rules for medication abortion, which they're trying to sneak by, too. Um, they are saying it's a 12-week ban for medication abortion. It's a 10-week ban. And they have things in terms of, like, the terrible things that doctors are being forced to tell patients. Um, doctors are forced to tell patients, if you have a medication abortion, you may see the remains of your unborn child. That's their language. Again, really dark, really, really punitive. It's very, very cruel. Um, you had some reporting in your excellent substack today about Texas abortion data, where the, essentially you sort of uncovered just almost preposterously shoddy double counting and fabric and sort of outright fabrication of data around complications due to abortion. Explain the story. So essentially, conservatives are super desperate right now to prove that abortion is unsafe, but we know that abortion is incredibly safe. And so because they don't have the science on their side, they've sort of decided to make up statistics using this reporting law. So they are forcing doctors in Texas, and the doctors that I've spoken to, by the way, 
are describing sobbing as they're filling out these forms. They are forcing doctors to fill out forms on a state website with their patients' private data, connecting their medical conditions to abortion complications, even when there is no connection whatsoever, right? They are doing anything that they can. And any doctor that this patient speaks to while they're at the hospital or while they're at their doctor's office has to report as well. And so one patient who may not even have a complication at all is all of a sudden responsible for three or four complication reports that they will then use in an annual um, abortion complication report to prove that abortion is dangerous. Yeah, I'm just reading from your reporting. Sue, a, a pseudonym for emergency medicine physician and other Texas doctors, have been required to submit patients' private medical information to state-run website without their knowledge or consent, adhering to a mandate that forces them to report women as suffering from abortion complications even when they're not. Rarely reported on section of Texas law list 28 medical issues as abortion complications. Doctors are required to tell the state about any woman who developed one of these issues if she happens to have had an abortion at any point in her life, meaning they don't actually have to be connected to the abortion. They're used to pad these stats. saw in Tennessee. Tennessee has set a very dangerous precedent for the nation with what happened to um, my friend here, Representative Zephyr in Montana, what's going on in Nebraska, and what's going to continue to happen as we see this rising tide of fascism and authoritarianism that's taken hold of our nation. Um, We see this weaponization of decorum to silence dissent, to silence voices that make people uncomfortable. And that's really what they're they're doing, is silencing any voice of, of, of divergence from their dominant narrative. And so, you know, to be here in D.C., we're continuing to lift up this this struggle as a as, to nationalize what is going on, um, because it's not just going to impact us in Tennessee and in Montana, but it's really going to impact our nation. That um, an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. And so, you know, we continue to push the White House, and, and I'm, I'm, I've been grateful to meet with many members here um, in the um, Capitol to let them know that from our state houses to the U.S. Capitol, we are facing some very um, dangerous trends in our democracy. I mean, connecting what happened to us to January 6th, which was an attempt to stop um, an election, to stop democracy. And so we have to stand together, um, and we must show that we are not going to be divided and conquered, but that we're united in our struggle uh, for multiracial democracy and uplifting voices that have been often put to the margins. Justin Jones, you were elected to be state representative in November, but before that, you were well known uh, in Nashville, uh, Black Lives Matter activists. In fact, you had taken on the House Speaker before. You're now calling for Cameron Sexton's uh, resignation. Um, but you had pushed and successfully pushed for the removal of the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest from the state capitol rotunda. Nathan Bedford Forrest— f- Forrest, the first grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, the Ku Klux Klan born in Tennessee. You ultimately won your battle, but Cameron Sexton voted against removing the founding grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan's bust from the state capitol. Is that right? What we're seeing in Tennessee is this battle of, of, of us representing a new South, you know, the, the South that does not worship 
um, symbols to the to white supremacy and the Confederacy and, and racial terror. But we're, we are trying to represent a new South that represents multiracial democracy and human rights, a South that affirms human dignity across race, across sexuality, across immigration status. Um, you know, we want to say that, you know, the Southern segregationists had a saying that the South will rise again. We stand as a new gen- generation and say that the South will rise anew and that the South is a front line in this b- battle for democracy um, and in this battle against white supremacy and transphobia and homophobia and, and, and xenophobia and misogyny um, and economic exploitation. We represent this new voice. And that's really what they're trying to expel, Amy, was not just us as individual lawmakers, but what we represent and this vision of the future that they're so fearful of, because it means one in which all of our voices are heard and all of our people are treated um, with respect and, 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 and protected, um, and not just the voices of, of a, a small white um, power structure of men of a particular religion and particular economic status who've dominated our politics for so long. Can you talk about um, the state legislature trying to give immunity to the gun manufacturers this vote right after the mass shooting in Nashville, the city you represent that killed three nine-year-olds and three adults? I mean, it is immoral that the only gun law that we passed in the light of a shooting that took the lives of three nine-year-olds and three adults, and, and it was not the first mass shooting in Nashville as well. We had the shooting uh, five years ago last week at the Waffle House um, in Nashville. And so what they decided to do was say, let's not protect kids, as we've been asking, but let's protect firearms manufacturers from lawsuits. Um, this is how immoral it is that we're dealing with people who care more about the profits of the gun industry than they, than they do the lives of our children, than, than they do the safety of our community. And, and it's immoral, and it shows where their allegiance is to, to these special interests. It shows the corruption of, of money in our political system, that that's the first action they take in light of a mass shooting was to pass that law and also to expel the two youngest la- black lawmakers. This is th- the way that they are moving. And so— um, it's not democracy. It is uh, mobocracy. It is it is terror for our communities, and it is insulting to the victims of this mass shooting and their families um, that that is the step forward that they're taking, and also to armed teachers as well. That was the other proposal they had, um, and it's just it is so hurtful for our people who are grieving still and demanding that we pass common sense gun laws that the majority of Tennesseans across the political spectrum support: red flag laws, a ban on assault weapons, universal background checks, and safe storage. That's what we should be passing. Republicans won the presidency in the Senate in 2016 despite losing the popular vote. Trump in the Senate then cooperated to fill three Supreme Court seats, tilting that the court dramatically to the right. The Supreme Court, in turn, enabled state-level authoritarianism in several ways, but particularly by upholding egregious gerrymandering schemes that permitted minority rule in Wisconsin and other state legislatures. Trump's allies hoped to use those legislators, legislatures to steal a national election. And that could, in fact, happen if the Supreme Court embraces what's called the independent state legislature doctrine, which states that the Constitution endows state legislatures with exclusive authority over elections, trumping governors, trumping state Supreme Courts, trumping state constitutions. Under that doctrine, gerrymandered state legislatures could set aside the popular vote uh, in a presidential election and send their own electors to the Electoral College, legally overturning a national election and, and effectively ending democracy as we know it. That is unlikely to happen. 
But just the fact that it is theoretically possible, just the fact that we are talking about it, shows us how prone U.S. democracy is to minority rule. I want to suggest this is a uniquely American problem. In no other established democracy can partisan minorities thwart electoral majorities as consistently or as consequentially as in the United States. Why is that the case? Excessive counter-majoritarianism used to be widespread in the world. In 19th century Europe, states had all sorts of undemocratic institutions. They had monarchic vetoes. They had indirect elections. They had unelected or badly malapportioned legislative chambers. And all of them had a bunch of filibuster-like mechanisms through which parliamentary minorities were able to thwart majorities. But other established democracies across the world gradually shed their counter-majoritarian institutions, their pre-democratic counter-majoritarian institutions. So Britain weakened the House of Lords, stripping it of its veto power. Denmark, Sweden, New Zealand, Portugal got rid of their undemocratic upper houses. Germany, Belgium, Austria democratized their senates um, by making them more proportional to the population. Britain, Canada, France, Australia, and other countries established cloture rules allowing simple legislative majorities to end debate. Germany, Switzerland, France imposed term limits on Supreme Court justices. The UK, Canada, Sweden, and other democracies imposed a retirement age for Supreme Court justices. And every other presidential democracy in the world got rid of its electoral college. Argentina was the last one in 1994. So other democracies over the, across the world have become more democratic over the last centuries. They have eliminated 18th and 19th century institutions that allowed minorities to systematically thwart majorities. Only the United States has maintained a good number of its pre-democratic institutions intact. So the United States today is the world's only presidential democracy with an electoral college. We have the most malapportioned Senate in the world except for Argentina and Brazil. No other democracy allows a congressional minority to routinely veto regular legislation backed by a majority. The United States is the only established democracy with truly lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court. Every other democracy in the world has either term limits or a retirement age. And our constitution is the hardest, among democratic constitutions, the hardest in the world to amend, to change. So the United States is an outlier. It is a uniquely counter-majoritarian system. This explains, at least in part, why U.S. democracy seems to be uniquely threatened among the world's rich democracies. The rise of multiracial democracy triggered an authoritarian reaction among a partisan minority, and counter-majoritarian institutions protected and empowered that majority. They amplified the authoritarian reaction. All right, so what can we do? In the near term, we continue to face an imminent authoritarian threat. It is therefore imperative, in my view, that politicians build broad coalitions in defense of democracy, coalitions that are capable, that are broad enough uh, to isolate and defeat the, um, the MAGA movement. Those coalitions have to include everybody from Bernie Sanders and AOC to Liz Cheney, George Bush, and conservative religious and business figures. That is not easy to do. Building a broad coalition like that, a multi-party coalition like that, requires concessions. It requires sacrifice. People like Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney have to work hard to elect Democrats. 
and progressives have to swallow hard and make the concessions necessary to bring conservatives on board. That's a big ask. But these are not ordinary times. If we behave as if they're ordinary times, if our politicians behave as if they're ordinary times, we could lose our democracy. In the longer run, though, it is imperative that America democratize its democracy, that we become more democratic. To ensure the consolidation of our multiracial democracy, we need to create a political system that allows electoral majorities to win and to govern. That means entrenching voting rights and ensuring equal access to the ballot. It means replacing the Electoral College with direct presidential elections. It means democratizing the Senate by eliminating the filibuster and giving more populous states greater representation. And it means, I think, establishing term limits for Supreme Court justices. These are not radical reforms. They already exist in most established democracies. Making it easier to vote, the elect uh, eliminating the Electoral College, eliminating the filibuster, making the Senate more proportional, ending lifetime tenure in the Supreme Court, each of those measures would bring the United States more in line with other established democracies. That's what it would do. The problem is that constitutional change in this country is nearly impossible. The United States Constitution is the world's most difficult to amend, to reform. So for the moment, we are trapped by our institutions. But it is critical, I think, that we begin to have a serious public conversation about constitutional reform. We stand at a crossroads. America will either be a multiracial democracy in the 21st century, or it will not be a democracy. There's no other road. Both of those roads lie before us today, and there's no going back. We've just heard clips today, starting with The Intelligence, describing why gridlock at the federal level has shifted focus to the states. The broadcast looked at how Republicans are attempting to trick voters into opposing democracy. The Last Word discussed the banning of Representative Zoe Zephyr in Montana. The New Yorker Radio Hour looked at the nationalization of local politics. The Laura Flanders Show explained the impacts of gerrymandering. Democracy Now! spoke with Justin Jones and Zoe Zephyr about pushing back against authoritarianism. All in with Chris Hayes looked at the strange case of the pro-choice Democrat in North Carolina who flipped to the Republican Party and helped pass abortion restriction legislation. Democracy Now! spoke with Justin Jones, who explained how the idea of decorum is being used to silence the opposition. And the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs explained the singularly anti-democratic nature of the U.S. political system compared to our international peers. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Not Another Politics podcast, which did a deeper dive on the mechanics of polarization in state politics. The median legislator in a Republican state is much farther away from the median legislator in a Democratic state. There's reasonable parity between the number of Democratic and Republican states. Fewer states have divided government, so the governors and the legislatures align. So we just have much more political polarization across states than we did before. 
To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now... We'll hear from you, or more specifically, Dave from Olympia, who's referring to a member's clip in which there was an idea proposed to allow wealth inheritance, but to put a time limit of 120 years on when it had to be fully spent as a way of encouraging the circulation of wealth rather than the hoarding of it. Hey, Best of the Left. It's Dave from Olympia, Washington. I was just finishing up oh, episode 1556, Wealth and Oligarchy. The last clip, the members clip from Gary's Economics, was it was very interesting. And full credit to, like, it really explains you know, the idea that for an economy to function, wealth needs to circulate. It needs to move around. It can't, you know, just sit in one place and stagnate and coagulate and whatever things do when they don't flow around. And (laughs) so we used to have a system like that that we called estate taxes, but those are basically not a thing anymore in the United States, which brings up, you know, two problems with implementation, one being, you know, shenanigans. People are going to find ways foreign bank accounts, weird loophole investments to save that money without getting it out. What is the actual enforcement mechanism? You can't just make up a rule and assume that everybody's going to follow it. There has to be some consequences. If they, if the wealthy families don't spend that money, what happens to it? Does it just, I don't know, get distributed evenly to all the population? Some mechanism that happens there. And then third, what I really think this is going to do, and this is how cynical I've become, it sets a 120-year time clock on the wealthy organizing you know, a political movement to overturn that rule, <laughs> which that seems to be how the wealthy are defending their wealth right now. So any great idea, even if it has great political groundswell and is adopted early, or, you know, through some mystical process where you just get to wave a wand and create this new universe where there's new new economic rule, it won't stay there unless it maintains, you know, unless it stays in the popular will. And unfortunately, the popular will is so easily manipulated by wealth and power. Ah, damn, I'm sorry. Anyhow, I enjoyed the clip. It was interesting to listen to. As always, thank you for everything you do. Stay awesome. There was a clip from Gary's Economics. I just left a voicemail about that in my attempt to track down Gary's Economics, which is not a podcast. It turns out there are other places to get media weird. It's a YouTube channel. So uh, clicking on that, immediately I'm forced to listen to at least the first five seconds of an ad from the Heritage Foundation explaining that wealth taxation inherently and always creates less total wealth and like oh i hate i hate it hate it hate it when i'm right and being proved that quickly ah our world is fun
If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record or text us a message at 202-999-3991 or send an email to j at bestofleft.com. I agree with Dave that it was a thought-provoking idea, but I also had a few critical thoughts on uh, the implementation, the most glaring of which is the contradiction between the idea being proposed as a zero-tax solution, but the obvious answer to what happens to any money left over after 120 years is that it has to get taxed away. I mean, I suppose there could be another solution, but that's probably what people would gravitate towards, so it's not exactly a zero-tax, but a, like threatened tax or a delayed tax or something like that. But I think Dave is right that shenanigans and the logistical complications of simply tracking finances over 120 years is probably the biggest hurdle. I think I'd start the negotiation with bringing back the guillotine and then just go from there. I'm not unreasonable. I'm open to good faith suggestions on wealth redistribution. So I'll take the guillotine policy and the Heritage Foundation will stake out the all wealth taxation is bad policy, and then we can see where we might meet in the middle. And by the way, there's an analogy I've been bouncing around in my head for like years now, and I don't think I've ever bothered to talk about it on the show, but I'm going to give it a go now. I've always thought of it as an analogy to explain the results of capitalism in a way that takes some of the arguments of capitalism's promoters into account, but now I'm realizing that it's more of an analogy to explain the dangers of using shorthand arguments instead of much more specific arguments. I, I think it'll make sense. So it goes like this. You're trying to come up with the fastest way to get across town. And so someone argues that the fastest way to get across town is to get the fastest possible car and for anything that would slow you down to be removed. So you get one of those rocket cars that they use to set land speed records and usually only drive on enormous salt flats. And you lobby the government to remove all stop signs, traffic lights, and speed limits. And then you begin your commute in your rocket car because that's the fastest way to get across town. Now, I'm sure everyone can imagine the carnage that would ensue from that plan. So the problem here is that the question of what's the fastest way to get across town sounds like a reasonable question, but only if you include a lot of unspoken assumptions that would actually make the question sound more like what's the fastest safe way to get across town in a society where the roads are shared by thousands of other people whose needs also need to be considered, or something like that. That's what I think of when I hear arguments made completely out of context, like Dave just relayed from the Heritage Foundation, the idea that you know wealth taxation leads to less total wealth. Okay, but even if I take you at your word on that, there's a lot that's being left out. Like, how is that wealth distributed in your hypothetical if not taxing wealth allows there to be more wealth just taking your word for it, but that wealth is accumulated vastly into the top 0.1%, then you're leaving out a really important detail there, because a smaller amount of total wealth spread more evenly across a greater number of people will create a happier society than a greater amount of wealth accumulated mostly at the top. 
But this is the kind of misdirection that happens when you substitute one imperfect concept as a substitute for another. Wealth isn't a stand-in for human flourishing any more than speed is the only factor related to getting across town. The same goes for the classic argument about lifting people out of poverty. Even if you take the argument that capitalism has proven to be the fastest way to lift people out of poverty, that doesn't also mean that it's also the best way to maximize human happiness in a sustainable way that can last indefinitely into the future. Instead, it's more reasonable to assume the opposite. If you've found a system that is the fastest at one task, it's almost certainly going to come at the cost of sustainability or safety or something else. I mean, sprinting is the fastest way to run, but it's not sustainable. And rocket cars might be the fastest way to drive across town, but they're not safe. So keep that in mind the next time you hear an argument in favor of something that's only close to, but not exactly the same as, the actual end goal that we should be aiming for. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail, as always, or you can now send us a text through SMS, WhatsApp, or Signal, all at 202-999-3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our patreon page or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content no ads and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player and you can join the discussion on our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com